Hello, everyone. This is Admiral Jamie Fogo broadcasting from the Center for Maritime Strategy at the Navy League of the United States in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Maritime Nation, a podcast designed to dive deeply into the policy challenges facing America's sea services and the role of the United States as a sea power on the global stage. We will continue to provide you with high-quality analysis of the most pressing maritime security challenges by joining in conversation with key experts and practitioners. Today's episode of the Maritime Nation is a special tribute to those who fought and served in the Korean War. Considering the fact that the Korean War started 72 years ago in June 1950, we thought it would be appropriate to invite a number of distinguished guests to discuss the Korean War and the U.S.-South Korea alliance today, as well as the broader implications of U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy. I'm joined by Dr. Steve Wills, the Center's navalist and a regular panelist on Maritime Nation. Another individual joining me today from the Center for Maritime Strategy is one of our analysts, Andrew Park. Previously, Andrew has worked at various places, including other think tanks and in the defense industry. Most relevant to today's topic, Andrew served in the South Korean Army when he was still a Korean citizen as a translator and interpreter at the U.S.-South Korea Combined Forces Command, U.S. Forces Korea, USFK. Also, it was originally Andrew's idea to program today's episode. So I asked Andrew to join us. Andrew, welcome aboard. What do you have to tell the audience? Thank you, sir. Very excited to be here. As a Korean-American, it is my deepest honor to have today's guests who fought or served in Korea. In the crucible of the war, the U.S. and Korea fought together, side by side, and the alliance continues to defend our shared values of freedom, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Hence, I agree with you, sir, that today's episode is very appropriate, not only because the Indo-Pacific is an extremely crucial region, but also commemorating our veterans and heroes is our duty and the right thing to do. Additionally, I'd like to point out that we are intentionally publishing this episode of the Maritime Nation on June 24th here in the U.S. and June 25th in Korea time, because June 25th is a day when Korean War started in 1950. Great points, Andrew. And so why don't you take the honor of introducing my former boss and a great naval officer, Admiral Harry Harris. Yes, sir. It is my sincere pleasure to introduce our first guest, Admiral Harry Harris. 1978 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, Admiral Harris has served 40 years in the U.S. Navy, retiring on June 1, 2018. He has commanded at all levels from a squadron to a four-star command, including U.S. Pacific Fleet, the Sixth Fleet, Striking and Support Forces NATO, Joint Task Force Guantanamo, Patrol and Reconnaissance Wing 1, and Patrol Squadron 46. From May 2015 to May 2018, he commanded U.S. Pacific Command, PACOM, now known as the Indo-Pacific Command, Indo-PACOM. Then, Admiral Harry Harris served the nation once more as U.S. Ambassador to South Korea between July 2018 and January 2021. Admiral Harry Harris' connection to the Korean Peninsula is not limited to himself as his father was also a Korean U.S. Navy veteran who fought in World War II and the Korean War. 
Lastly, he is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the CFR, and the Council of American Ambassadors. Admiral Harry Harris's bio does not stop there. However, for the sake of the listeners, we will share his full bio on our podcast website. Thanks very much, uh, Andrew. And Admiral Harris, Harry, it is great to have you with us today. Now, folks, as you heard, Admiral Harris was my former boss and mentor when we both served at the U.S. Sixth Fleet. He was the Sixth Fleet commander, and I was his deputy as a one-star, his operations officer, the commander of subgroup eight, and the commander of Allied Submarines South for NATO. Harry taught me everything I needed to know in order to be an effective fleet commander. But to tell you the truth, I never quite lived up to his high standards when I was a Sixth Fleet commander. He set the bar very high. We went to sea together on USS Mount Whitney, and we fought the Libya campaign together in 2011. That was a formative experience in my education as a flag officer. Thanks for everything that you taught me, Admiral Harris. Great to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks, uh, uh, Jamie. And uh, let me uh, just uh, applaud first uh, this series uh, that you are doing uh, uh, with the Navy League, uh, the Maritime Nations series. Uh, I'm impressed by it, and I'm honored to be a part of it. And Andrew, thanks for that great introduction. Very pleased to have served in Korea. uh, And thank you for mentioning my father. We honor him and all of the other Korean War veterans who fought uh, in Korea and almost 40,000 died there. So thank you for that. And Jamie, as far as the Sixth Fleet and our experiences go, uh, you know, my experience as a Sixth Fleet commander uh, was uh, formative for me as well. But with you as my deputy, you know, what I learned uh, was to have fun and and watch you do all the work. And that worked out well for me in the long (laughs) run. So thank you for that. Thank you, sir. Your role as commander of United States Pacific Command provided you with a uh, bird's eye view and a critical perspective on the rising geopolitical tensions in the Indo-Pacific. And you barely took a day off before being confirmed as the U.S. ambassador to South Korea. Quite an honor. Two different roles, or are they? Did your time as America's ambassador in Korea change your perspective on the region's challenges and how to deal with them? Could you share some some lessons learned or some anecdotes with uh, with our listeners, please? Sure. Um, I think there are two questions uh, there, Jamie. First, are the roles different? Uh, and did my time as the ambassador change my perspective uh, on the region's challenges? So to your first question, well, the roles are vastly different, uh, more so than I expected. Um, As the ambassador, uh, I was a diplomat representing the president of the United States to the government of South Korea. Uh, The Korean language, I think, is instructive here. The Korean word for ambassador is desa, D-E-S-A, desa. And that means uh, the big messenger. And that kind of says it all, right? I mean, that, that describes the role of the ambassador. The ambassador is the big messenger. He or she is not the decision maker, not the decider. Uh, and as the PACOM commander, completely different, right? I was a decision maker, uh, I was a decider, uh, and I commanded troops, commanded forces. So uh, the, the two roles are, are vastly different. Um, and I had to mind my P's and Q's, I might add, a lot more as the ambassador than I did uh, as a PACOM commander. Um, 
to the second question, though, the real question um, about my perspectives on the region, uh, they did not change when I went from being the PACOM commander to being the ambassador. To the contrary, my time in South Korea solidified, uh, crystallized, uh, even hardened uh, my views. When I was the PACOM commander, I used to say that North Korea kept me up at night, that the PRC, the People's Republic of China, was the biggest long-term challenge uh, to the United States, uh, and that Russia uh, was both a spoiler and remained an existential threat to the United States. Now, those views didn't change at all uh, when I served in Korea. Um, being in Seoul focused my outlook, of course, on North Korea and made me realize that Kim Jong-un would never give up his nuclear weapons program. In fact, uh, Kim Jong-un wants four things. Um, he wants to keep his nukes, to end the sanctions, to split the alliance, and to dominate the peninsula. Uh, so my views on the region uh, didn't change at all, but rather than the bird's eye view that I had uh, as, uh, uh, as a pickup commander, uh, I had an on the ground view of the biggest challenges that face uh, our country uh, while I was in Seoul. Absolutely fantastic, sir. And I saw Andrew smiling when you use that term, DESA, the big messenger. And clearly while you were over there, uh, we watched uh, everything you were doing and you were carrying that big message for the United States of America. Thanks very much for that. Andrew, do you have a question for the Admiral? Sir, I cannot agree with you more on those four things that North Korea wants to keep. Um, I mean, full agreement. Sir, I have another question. What do you perceive as the main drivers of Korea's national security agenda in light of the recent election of President Yoon Suk-yeol? To what degree do Korean national politics and public opinion play a role in shaping Korea's foreign policy and defense posture? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Andrew. Let me just say, as you know, that South Korea is a democracy, a young democracy, I might add. Uh, they've only been a truly democratic country since the late 80s. 1980s, but it is a democracy. So public opinion manifested by votes uh, matters. Uh, therefore, national politics clearly shape foreign and domestic policies as national politics shape our policies as well in the United States. Uh, President Yoon won a close election uh, earlier this year, uh, but he's going to have to govern in an opposition-controlled national assembly. So that's a challenge for him, and it'll 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 be uh, important for him to navigate uh, those uh, difficult waters, I believe. Uh, but even with the election as close as it was, it's clear to me that the Korean electorate, Korean people, were unhappy with the previous administration's approach uh, to economics and, importantly, uh, North Korea uh, and its alliance with the United States. That's right, sir. Um, there were many problems that the people of South Korea were not happy with, in and out, domestic politics and foreign policy, not just the United States, also Japan and others in the region and China. Think about the that incident, for example. Yep, I agree with you completely on that. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, Admiral Harris, I was uh, lucky enough to be out at the West Conference in San Diego, uh, sponsored by our friend uh, Admiral Pete Daly from the U.S. Naval Institute. Uh, you filled in 
uh, with late notice for uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin as the keynote speaker that morning because uh, he was otherwise occupied with the events that were leading up to the Russian attack on the Ukraine. Um, you called for an end to strategic ambiguity, uh, specifically in regards uh, to PRC aggression and some of the things that are happening, uh, not just in the South China Sea, but also in the Straits of Taiwan. And I applauded that. Uh, most recently, when uh, the President of the United States was asked in a press conference, uh, what would happen, what would the United States do if uh, Taiwan were attacked? Uh, he said we would come to their defense. And uh, then there was a little bit of uh, rolling that statement back by uh, the White House and Secretary Blinken. So do you see this as more or less ambiguous now? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, let, me, uh, let me back up just a little bit and talk about <clears throat> what the, the strategic clarity means. But before that, I'll just say that uh, I was honored to speak at the West Conference in San Diego. Uh, I recognize uh, that uh, the Pete, Pete Daly and the team traded down uh, when they got me to come. <laughs> Not <through>. at all. <laughs> you know, it's the story of my life. Uh, you know, my call sign is Mr. Backup, uh, but I'm happy to do that to represent uh, 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 there at, uh, at West. It's an important conference, uh, and I was pleased to be there. Uh, so back to strategic uh, clarity and all that, let me reiterate my position. I believe that the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity. And that means, uh, uh, that's the question of whether we would defend Taiwan or not in the case of a cross-strait invasion by the PRC to forcibly unite uh, Taiwan uh, with the mainland. Uh, we, we have deliberately left that question unclear. We have left it ambiguous. So the PRC doesn't know if we would uh, attack or we would defend Taiwan or not. And that has that policy, Jamie, in my opinion, has served us well for the last 40 years or so. Uh, but I think today, in 2022, uh, that policy no longer serves us well because it has no effect at all, in my opinion, on the PRC's uh, calculus on when and uh, and if uh, they'll attack Taiwan to forcibly uh, reunite uh, reunite uh, Taiwan with the mainland. They're going to do what they're going to do uh, as long as we are ambiguous about what we are going to do. And I think that's the key. Um, I think that, um, uh, that we need to have a, a new policy of strategic clarity uh, where we are clear uh, about what we would do. And I think it's important for three primary audiences. It's important for the Taiwanese, for the Taiwan people, uh, so they'll know whether the United States will come to their aid militarily or not. And they can then make the decision on, on how to defend themselves, what weapons to buy, that kind of thing, in a more uh, complete uh, view. So they'll have a complete understanding of, of what the expectations are. It's important to the PRC. So if we're ambiguous about it, uh, ambiguity doesn't serve us well in the 21st century on this issue, I believe. So we need to be clear to the PRC uh, what we would do. And finally, and most importantly, I think we need to be clear to the American people whose sons and daughters are going to actually do the fighting. Uh, and we need to be clear with them on, on uh, what we would do uh, in the case uh, of a cross-trade invasion by the PRC.
So that's that's kind of where I am on, on the issue. Now to the president's remarks, he has said this at least three times publicly that we'll defend Taiwan. Uh, he said this at least three times publicly since he became uh, the president. And each time uh, people have tried to walk it back, either the National Security Council, uh, the State Department, or DOD have tried to walk it back. Well, I think maybe we should believe him. We should take him at his word. Roger we should plan accordingly. Yes, sir. Very important point. Sir, how can the United States and South Korea work better together? How does this partnership fit into the United States strategy for in the Pacific? For sure, uh, the partnership, the alliance we have with South Korea is a cornerstone. It's a linchpin uh, of our whole uh, Indo-Pacific security strategy. Look, we only have five bilateral treaty alliances, uh, bilateral treaty alliances in the whole wide world, right? Australia, Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, and of course, South Korea. Uh, President Biden has visited Seoul. Uh, Secretary Austin, Secretary of Defense Austin uh, visited there last fall, last November. Uh, Undersecretary of State Wendy Sherman was there last week. These are just uh, visible uh, manifestations of the, uh, the importance that we place on our alliance uh, with South Korea. You know, this, this whole series today uh, is, is about the Korean War. Um, and, you know, people asked me when I was in Seoul as the ambassador whether we were asking South Korea to make a choice between uh, the PRC and the United States. The PRC, its number one trading partner uh, in the United States, its only security uh, ally. And I think that, and I used to say that that's a false choice, right? Uh, it's a false narrative designed to sow doubt about the strength and history of our alliance. The United States made our choice, right? We chose to defend South Korea when the North invaded in 1950. And South Korea also made its choice. It chose to join uh, an alliance with the United States uh, and, and uh, align with the West in 1953. So choices have already been made. Um, and we have, uh, you know, today we have uh, uh, almost 30,000 troops uh, in, in South Korea, and, and that is a visible manifestation of the importance that we place on the alliance. Uh, and also, it's a manifestation of how important South Korea, uh, of the importance that South Korea places on the alliance as well, uh, as it uh, is a superb host uh, to those troops uh, uh, and their families. So uh, I think that, uh, uh, that, that we put the alliance with South Korea at the very top, right? It's very important to us, and, and I believe it's equally important to South Korea uh, and, in fact, the whole region. Thank you very much, uh, not just for your time today, sir, but for your extensive service to the United States Navy, to the Department of State, and to the nation. And I couldn't agree with you more that as we make these decisions moving forward uh, with all the tension in the world that uh, we've got to take into account that uh, the committing of American forces uh, to places worldwide must be done uh, judiciously and with malice aforethought. And speaking of that, in our next segment here on Maritime Nation of this podcast, uh, we're going to talk to a couple of Montfort Point Marines 
who fought wow. in the Frozen Chosen, the Battle of Chosen Reservoir, the first battle between the U.S. military and the People's Liberation Army of China in modern history, and the coldest battle on record in human history. In that segment, Dr. Steve Wills, our navalist, will join Andrew to moderate. Thanks very much, sir, and we really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jamie. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, you and your team. Battle of Chosin Reservoir has numerous names. Battle of Chosin Reservoir, Chosin Reservoir Campaign, Campaign of Chosin, Frozen Chosin, Battle of Lake Changjin, and Changjinojontu. I just called it Changjin instead of Chosin because that is the real Korean, Korean pronounced name of the lake, which is currently a part of North Korean territory. The name Chosin is derived from Japanese pronunciation instead of the Korean pronunciation and that was because the U.S. military back then used the Japanese maps. There are many names, and it is still remembered widely among not only the American and Korean military, but also many military strategists and historians, for it was perhaps one of the most important battles in the Korean War. So, for those who are not familiar with the Korean War, let me provide a very short summary as an introduction to the Battle of Chosin Reservoir. Kim Jong-un's grandfather, Kim Il-sung, invades South Korea with blessing of China's Mao Zedong and the Soviet Stalin on June 25, 1950. Despite U.S. Army's urgent deployment of a brigade of U.S. Forces Japan USFJ and the 24th Infantry Division, the Korean People's Army KPA defeated the U.S. and U.N. forces relentlessly, up to the point where they captured the commander of the 24th Infantry Division, a two-star U.S. Army general, take the South Korean capital Seoul on June 28th and push the UN forces to the bottom right corner of the peninsula in August 1950. Fortunately, the US Navy maintained a total control of the maritime domain around the peninsula. In the absence of North Korean Navy, US Navy dominated the seas with 11 aircraft carriers, Iowa-class battleship, numerous cruisers, frigates, and destroyers. There were 23 aircraft carriers in total, including that of the UN forces, including USS Valley Forge and her Royal Navy counterpart, HMS Triumph. Thanks to such favorable maritime environment, General MacArthur was able to conduct the famous amphibious invasion, the Battle of Incheon, also known as the Incheon Landing, and quickly turn around the state of the war. As the North Korean forces in the southern part of the peninsula got wiped out by the UN forces, KPA lost control. Accordingly, the UN forces pushed north, capturing North Korean capital Pyongyang and vast majority of the North Korean territory by mid-October 1950. However, as 300,000 Chinese PLA forces intervened in response, the UN forces had to retreat. In the middle of that retreat were Battle of Chosin Reservoir and then the Hungnam evacuation. Again, the Battle of Chosin Reservoir has historical significance in many ways. It was the first time in the modern history when the U.S. military fought with the PLA. Also, it was one of the fiercest battles and a successful retreat operation that the U.S. Marine Corps conducted since its foundation. Lastly, it was the coldest battle in the human history. With that, let me introduce our guests of the second segment. In here at the podcast room, we have four gentlemen in the room. 
two of they are chosen few, the Montfort Point Marines who fought the Battle of Chosin Reservoir. Sergeant Ivor Griffin is a veteran of World War II, Korean War, and the Vietnam War. Also, he is a proud recipient of the Congressional Gold Medal, which he received in 2012. Next, we have Staff Sergeant Eugene Groves, a veteran of Korean War and Vietnam War. I had an honor of meeting these two gentlemen a few years ago, and I'm very pleased to meet them again today. Next, we have two slightly younger Montfort Point Marines in the room who fought in the Vietnam War. First is Lance Corporal Cyprian Jennifer, and finally, Sergeant Maurice Ross. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. What an honor. And gentlemen, uh, thank you so very much for joining us. My name is Dr. Steve Wills. I'll go ahead and lead off with some of the questions. Uh, first of all, it is, it is great to have you here. My dad <laughs> served in Korea some years after some of you, later on in the 1950s. So I have some understanding of the world that you were in. And as we discussed earlier, uh, I also served aboard as a Navy officer, USS Cho Sin, uh, CG-65, named after this battle. And we often had Cho Sin few veterans come aboard and visit us. And I know they played a big role in the commissioning of the ship in 1991. So it's especially exciting for me to, again, uh, meet some of you and, and have a conversation with you here today. So let me go ahead and kick off our, our first question to our guests. Uh, the Monford Point Marines were fully integrated into the Marine Corps at that time, thanks to an executive order from President Harry S. Truman. Can you talk about your experiences as to what being integrated uh, in the United States Marine Corps was like in the Korean War? Thank you. Being integrated... Uh I figured it was about time that we, you know, got to be a part of the mainstream of the of the of the Marine Corps. You know, that's what we came in for in the beginning. During segregation, we didn't have that opportunity, uh, but uh, we were still, you know, even during World War Two, you know, the Montfort Marines was on the battlefield, just like everyone else. But, you know, in a uh, more or less a different role, you know. Uh, I, 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 um, I guess at that time, I was still a very young man because I received my draft notice when I was in the foxhole in the Korea. Because I went in before <laughs> I was old enough. Well, that's a great place <laughs> to, to be drafted. <laughs> and uh, uh, being part of an integrated organization, you know, being trained the way we were, you know, we were trained as Marines, so we didn't uh, look at it any different, you know, because we all had a job to do, and we were trained to do it together. That's the way Marines are trained. So we, we just uh, stepped right in and did our part, and uh, did our job, and... Uh, Whatever we were told to do, we did it, you know, just like everybody else, you know, fighting to stay alive and you know, with all the uh, shelling and killing and everything that was going on, you know, and uh, some good times, some bad times, you know, but we never had R&R. &R. Our R&R &R 
consisted of being maybe five or ten miles behind the line. If a fight broke out on the west side and they needed reinforcements, your R&R was gone, so you had to go and plug in the gap, you know, and things like that. I don't know, looking back on it, I guess I must have been crazy because when I came back, I re-enlisted. So maybe I was still still what they call back then was shell shock, <laughs> what they call PSD now. <laughs> That's that's awesome. The Marine Corps is a home for many, so you yes. play in that way. Well, when I came in, I was young, 17-year-old. The time I come in, I didn't see many Caucasian officers. I was brought up and trained by a private. Nowadays, you go into the Marine Corps, you got a sergeant or staff sergeant, that trains you. I came up with a private. Private was as mean as a junkyard dog. We'd have to, if any man did something wrong, NCOs took care. They didn't go have office hours. You either go into boondocks, you know what that meant, yeah, and come out, and you friends, and you go on about your duties. See, when I went to Korea, I was in the 11th Marines. Mm-hmm. I remember one battle was when we chased the regulars back to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was called a yellow, the yellow, yellow sea. Yellow mm-hmm. river. Yes, sir. But yeah, we, was river, on, yeah. we was on the Yalu River, which mm-hmm. runs into the. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah. And uh, I ate my Thanksgiving dinner on a. Yalu uh, <laughs> Banks. Yeah. And uh, that was when it chased them. Right. They wanted to go f- chase after them further. But, you know, you know what happened. Mm-hmm. Politicians say, no, no, no. But we stayed there for about four or five days mm-hmm. because we had left our previous position and came there. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> when we got there, we stayed there, I think, about Four days, and we went back to our original position and stayed there, and stayed there until they had the armistice. And uh, I'll always remember that because I, out through the bunker, I could see far away on a hill, white robes mm. with black hats on, huh. and I said, "What's going on?" Yeah, and. Finally, told me, say, armistice. Oh, yeah. So, those were the Korean civilians yeah, yeah. in civilian oh, Korean traditional clothing yeah, approaching and, you. But they, they, these were, I think, Korean, uh-huh. uh, North Korean soldiers uh-huh. that was on this hill. I mean, you could see it, white and black caps. Hats. Interesting. Yes. Like, yeah. like this. Yeah, kind yes, of yes. It's called cot. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. And uh, from then, uh, and then, like I said, we came back, and uh, I stayed until I was ready to come home. As far as being in the Marine Corps, when I came in, it was pretty rough because when I left my home state, Pennsylvania, 
Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, we had prejudice there, but wasn't as pronounced as it was in the South. Uh, I remember getting on the train, riding to Wilson, North Carolina. Oh, okay. And in Wilson, we had to take a bus to Jacksonville, North Carolina. And I always remember getting on the bus, because on a train, you could sit anywhere. On the bus, I start to sit down. Uh, the bus driver said, boy, I'm not used to being called boy. I'm not used to hearing someone call me boy. I looked around, uh, go back there and sit. I said, well, that's a chair. He said, I said, go back there and sit down. It was one uh, colored gentleman there. He said, son, I think you better should, you should go back there. And I said, well, I didn't want to argue. I went back there and sat down. And I found out exactly what it was. Yeah, I said, I had went there. And the, the station that we uh, took the bus from, that the white and the black, the whites had beautiful chairs, good place to eat. The black side of it had a cubby hole. And that's where we would order our food. And uh, at a bench where we sat down there, came to Jacksonville, North Carolina. The bus took us to Jacksonville, North Carolina. That's where I met, uh, trying to think of his name, Judo Jones. He was a policeman, uh, MP, and he didn't take no stuff either. So, all right, you skinheads, come on, get on this bus. As we went to, to, to Marvel Point Camp, where they took us and got our heads shaved and a uh, few things at the PX, but we didn't know it was going to come out of our pay. They never tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> the haircut, it all costs something. Got a bucket, a brush, some tied shaving equipment, toothpaste, but all the stuff we got there. Yeah, we had uh, we had other soap too. Uh, uh, had to come out our pay. I mean, we were privates, so it didn't matter too much. But uh, it was a quite an experience at the time because I came in in 1945. And there's different levels of segregation in the United States yes. at that time, yeah. and you oh, experienced yeah. a more pronounced yes. Yes. some. Yeah, being from the South, you know, I, I came from the South, and uh, I joined the Marine Corps, you know, say, I know I'm going to get away from this mess, you know, and uh, because I didn't, I just didn't think the military would be segregated like it was, you know. And uh, as a matter of fact, a little story, uh, when I, I was born in the South on a farm, mm -hmm. and my grandfather was a sharecropper. Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, one day, the weather was bad, and we couldn't get out to do the crop. And his son came, had a only bicycle I know in the area. He came out, hit me in the back with his bicycle, and I swung on him. My grandfather's eyes got about that big, you know, because back then, you know, we had the Ku Klux Klan riding and all that, you know, and night wilders or whatever they call them. 
You had to be in the house at a certain time. So that was just before my 17th birthday. And uh, as soon as my 17th birthday rolled around, my grandfather said, with your temper, we got to get you out of here. So he signed for me to join the Marine Corps. And it walked, I think it's five miles to the recruiting station. My buddy and I, he's still living and he's back in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. We joined together in the boot camp and he was talking about Judo Jones. I was my drill instructor. <laughs> and as you say, he was being, and he was Judo Jones also. I found that out from a flips that he put on me. And, uh, French boot camp and uh, end up on Guam, and uh, segregation was there. Came from Guam, then Korean War broke out. Supposed to get out, got extended by Harry Truman. It was Truman's MPs, that's what they called us, and, you know, it was Truman's war. And like I said, we landed in Incheon, from Incheon to the Frozen Chosen. And uh, as we advanced, you know, and then we got up there and it was cold. I don't know what. Snow, foxholes full of snow, mm-hmm. no air support. And half the time they dropped supplies, they dropped in the enemy territory. Enemy territory. So, and uh, it was a bad experience. And, uh, I remember one time, it was seven of my, my out of my platoon, it's called a gone outpost. And uh, it got overran by Chinese, so they started shelling it. And as far as I know, I don't know if that body was ever recovered. Think about it. Not now. Sometimes I still dream about it. But thank God, my name wasn't called to go on that outpost that mm-hmm. night, so I got to survive. And I came back home, and I was on the West Coast for a while, then came back to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at Camp Geiger down at Camp Lejeune. Mm-hmm. Still segregated, still had to ride on the back of the bus. Still had segregated theaters on the base. So we broke that up. We decided one day that we were going to, Go to the theater, sat all over the theater. Naturally, the fights broke out. Well, they closed the theater down for two weeks, and when they opened it back up, they said we could sit anywhere we wanted to sit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mr. Groves, you have mentioned the harsh, cold weather, the environment. Oh. It was really... It was the coldest weather in the human history in the That's battle, the coldest right? weather I've been in. Oh, That's man. Right. So, oh. so other than cold, which was so critical, what made the battle very important and such a difficult battle to fight these PLA uh, forces? I, I can remember mm-hmm. one thing. We was talking about it when we was coming up here, that uh, it was so cold. At the time I went in, they didn't have the type of sleeping bags they have now. You couldn't pop them open. And uh, few of our men got banned at it and, um, because they couldn't get out of them in time fast uh-huh. enough. Uh-huh. And uh, 
something else. We had socks they would give us and say, well, put the socks under your clothes to keep them warm. Yes, to insulate. Change your socks often. And we had those, what kind of boots you called them? Shoe packs. That's what we had, shoe packs. Shoe packs. Well, they were... They would hold the heat. Huh. And you, yeah, they would hold the heat now. And if you didn't change your socks, they, the socks would adhere to your skin. And when you took your boots off, the socks and the skin came off with you. Shoe. So the bad supplies. That. Or, yeah, dealing with trench foot and other things yeah, like that. Yeah. That, that's a, and, you know, they, it's gotten so bad. Yeah. That they were uh, article, what's called Article 15. They had to use Article 15 on the men because they said if you don't do it, it we're going to charge you. Mm-hmm. Finally, before I left, they came out with a sleeping bag where you could put your weapon in there with you, and if you got attacked, you could pop it open mm-hmm. and, and you reuse it again. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that happened. I came in. I told you a private trained me. Yeah. He took us out in the field. We came back. It's a little story here that I'll, I'll always remember and tell people. He said, I was the right guide at the time, the right guide of the platoon. Mm-hmm. He said, Private Griffin. I said, yes, sir. See that tree over there? Yes, sir. Chew it down. I start to say, I, but I said, uh-uh, I know him. Let me think. Let me think. I went right on over there. It was a pine tree. Did a piece of bark and brought it back to him. Don't never say you can't do nothing unless you try. <laughs> but I paid the price. A critter was on that bark. Oh, good grief. And bit my lip. <laughs> they will call me liver lip for a couple oh, of days. Oh, good grief. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> Yes. And the cold weather, you know, really, the cold weather equipment that we had was not adequate for that, that Arctic weather that we had up there in, in Korea. Because we had a lot of casualties from frostbite. We lost yeah. up legs, hands, and things like that. They didn't have any other cold weather gear for y'all no, to use, no, did no. they? I mean, no, no, not no. That. I remember seeing my, my dad still has some of those. He was army, but it's those cotton cotton uniforms that did not look terribly warm yeah, yeah. Uh, in the kind of temperatures that you're describing. And well, that old uh, Parker, <laughs> they had a Parker, but, you know. That's a, well, we had, a, he had a lot of, we had a lot of men that, well, quite a few men that suffered from frostbites, mm-hmm. lost mm-hmm. toes and stuff like that, you know. But I'm going to tell you the truth. I've never been in a place so cold. I'm out. Life. I'm gonna tell you the truth. It's cold. Now, just like it was cold in the winter, summertime was just as hot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we Am I from, right? Yeah, we went from the yeah. from the hot in <laughs> September to the cold. That's right. You say that as someone from Philadelphia <laughs> who obviously experienced cold weather. <laughs> yeah, but 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 yeah, I experienced cold weather, but not like that. I I, I never thought I'd experienced weather like that before. Korea has four distinctive seasons, right? Um, 
Koreans say very proudly, oh, we have four beautiful distinctive seasons. We have these autumn leaves and everything, very beautiful summer, but it's very harsh environment when you look in yeah. with the military lens, the strategic and you know, tactical lens. And that's why um, the previous um, Marine Corps commandant said, uh, we love to train in Korea because it sucks to be there. <laughs> Four different <laughs> weathers, and we love to train our Marines there and make them you know, go through the harsh environment. I don't, I don't know whether that was the coldest year or not, uh, whether that was coldest year or not, but I'm going to tell you, it was cold to me. Okay, and as we talked about your combat against the uh, North Koreans and especially the People's Liberation Army of China, as we spoke earlier, the United States is again looking at China as a potential adversary. And you gentlemen represent the last group of people to actively engage in combat against Mm -hmm. a Chinese soldier. Now, I know this is a different Chinese soldier perhaps today than uh, from 1950, but... Is there anything that you would want to pass along to current servicemen to tell them about your experiences fighting the Chinese and the North Koreans? About them as soldiers? As long as we were fighting the North Koreans, you know, we was moving on. We were moving on. We wasn't too far from the Chinese-Nigerian border. Korean, I mean, yeah, the Korean-Nigerian mm-hmm. border. And when the Chinese came in, there was so many of them. Sometimes the first and second wave, you know, they just had the light stuff. And you spent all your ammunition and stuff like that on the first and second wave, and then they just keep coming. They were used to that weather, and uh, they were first fighters, the Chinese. Well, you know, even though, you know, you, I think the killing ratio was 100 to 1. Yeah, you That's how uh, many there was. Uh, they, uh... Uh, we killed them in and uh, many, many, because mm. they would come with their weapons, and mm. guess who came behind them? The mm. people with the pots and pans. Now, if they got <laughs> killed, the ones with pots and pans would come along and pick it up and kept on going. Oh, yeah. yeah and that's why it was so many of them that were uh, killed, because they just ran into fire. <laughs> that's when so I said, so I've never little. seen anything like that before. I think they're probably better trained now. But I still think we are the best best trained yeah, military yeah, in the world. Yeah, that's right. Because you know. I'm in stood yeah. the ground. Another point that we have to remember is that we have seen the battle for the past decades. We are we were actively in the battles. Whereas China has not been in a battle, active battle for the past decades. And all those old guards who have experienced the World War Two against Imperial Japan and us mm-hmm. in the Korean War are gone. They're not there anymore. They're certainly not on active duty anymore. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right, gentlemen, it was an honor to have a brief moment to pick your brains and hear your experiences. As a Korean American, I cannot thank you enough for you and others for the sacrifices and the service to this nation. If it wasn't for you, I'm not here. I don't exist. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Next on our third segment, Admiral Fogo, and I will talk to Mr. Ned Forney to commemorate the late Rear Admiral Robert Lunny in his heroic work in saving tens of thousands of civilians and U.S. and U.N. forces in the Hungnam evacuation.
Welcome back to our listeners. In our last segment today, we will commemorate the heroes of the Hung Nam evacuation, a little-known operation during the Korean War that saved more than 100,000 U.S. servicemen and 14,000 Korean refugees. By talking to Captain Ned Forney, a U.S. Marine Corps retired veteran, and a writer who's working on a nonfiction book about the Battle of Chosen Reservoir and the Hung Nam evacuation, which I think, Ned, you're going to call our better angels. We'll commemorate three among countless numbers of heroes who fought and saved myriad lives. They are Admiral James Robert Looney, by the way, uh, a former council president of the New York Council of the Navy League, just passed away in March uh, earlier this year. Uh, Captain Leonard LaRue, and Colonel Edward Forney, who retired as Brigadier General Forney, uh, and he was Ned's grandfather. Andrew, please introduce Mr. Forney and our three heroes for the last segment of the podcast. Yes, sir. Our last guest of today's episode is Mr. Ned Forney. Mr. Forney was born in 1963 at Marine Base Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. A 1985 graduate of the Citadel, Mr. Forney served as an infantry officer of the Marine Corps between 1985 and 1990 and completed his Marine Corps career as a captain. During his time, he deployed to Okinawa in Japan, the Philippines, and Norway. Upon leaving the Corps, Mr. Forney entered the teaching profession and worked for 25 years as a high school English and history teacher and principal at public private, and international schools in the U.S., the Middle East, and Asia. He also served as the Director of Education at Patriots Point Naval and Maritime Museum in South Carolina, where he implemented and taught history programs aboard the USS Yorktown CV-10. Mr. Forney lived in Seoul, South Korea, for seven years until very recently, researching and writing book on Hungnam evacuation. Mr. Forney, or Captain Forney, Welcome aboard. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. So great to be here with you guys. Thank you, Admiral. Thank you, Ned. And uh, we just talked with uh, the chosen few, the Montfort Point Marines, in the previous segment and learned of their experiences fighting in the Battle of Chosen Reservoir. Um, it was absolutely extraordinary. It was Dr. Wills and Andrew doing this interview. I had an opportunity to listen in. And uh, one of these Marines who joined up uh, before his 18th birthday, you know, which was uh, uh, not the right way to do it, uh, received his draft card while he was in the trenches in Chosen Reservoir. He'd already been fighting for a year by the time he was of uh, legal age. Uh, these Marines also made a very compelling uh, story of segregation in the Marine Corps. Um, so... Ivor Griffin, who is 95, and Eugene Groves, 93, talked about what it was like and the manner in which they were treated before Marines, uh, African-American Marines, became an integrated part of the force. That was telling and compelling and emotional to listen to. Uh, on a higher note, they also mentioned being on the Yalu River on the border of China on Thanksgiving during the campaign in 1950 where they had their Thanksgiving turkey before they were pulled back uh, south of the demilitarized zone. So some real heroes. And the last thing I'll tell you is, while the conditions on the ground were changing, 
And uh, our troops were moving back and forth in exchange with uh, Chinese and North Korean troops. Uh, we had total control of the sea in the Yellow Sea and Sea of Japan. Andrew mentioned in his research 11 aircraft carriers present to provide that control, along with another 12 uh, from UN nations. And today, if you think about it, we have 12 American aircraft carriers. China's bringing their third on board. Mm -hmm. During the Korean War, 11 carriers were in the Yellow Sea and Sea of Japan. So if that doesn't you know, beg for a larger maritime force today with the threats that are significantly increased, I don't know what does. Uh, so I think this is a very good segue, Ned, uh, because the Hungnam evacuation took place immediately after the Battle of Chosen Reservoir as those Marines and other U.S. and U.N. forces retreated from Jinjin Lake in a region called Hungnam. You're writing a book about uh, the Chosen and the evacuation operation. Would you please explain to the listeners what the historical significance of the Hunnam evacuation is, also known as the miracle of Christmas, and how did you start your project to write a book on this subject? Over to you. Oh, thank you. So yeah, when, when we talk about Hunnam, the first thing that always pops up in most people's minds when I mention Hunnam evacuation is um, they never heard of it. It's it's basically forgotten. Yeah. It's a forgotten segment of the forgotten war, um, but it is the largest military amphibious evacuation under combat conditions in U.S. history. The largest in U.S. history. So that's that's you know when you tell people that they're like, well, how come I haven't heard about it? And I think it's maybe partly due to the fact that it was a retreat. You know, it was an amphibious landing in reverse. And when MacArthur uh, shows up, I think it was on December 8th, after the Marines are now coming out of the, the Chongjin Reservoir, and they're making their way down this um, main supply route. Uh, the MSR was about 70 miles long from Chongjin to Hunnam. Hunnam was the nearest port on, on, in, in, North, it was in North Korea. And so MacArthur meets with General Ned Almond, who's the commander of 10th Corps. And MacArthur flies in, and they meet that day. And MacArthur says, all right, everyone's retreating out of, out of um, Chongjin. Get them down to Hunnam and get them out of there fast. And I think one thing that many people don't realize is, is at this point, Truman and I think the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and all the, all the bigwigs in Washington are considering that if we don't get the 1st Marine Division out of Hunnam safely and back around the peninsula so that they can hopefully fight off the Chinese who are now advancing towards Seoul, if the 1st Marine Division doesn't get out, Many people believe, many historians believe now that um, Truman would have pulled out all the U.S. forces from Korea and brought them back over to Japan, and that probably would have been the end of the war. So these are the darkest days of the Korean War, this, this last few weeks of December 1950. Um, the peninsula, peninsula will be totally overrun by the Chinese if we can't get everybody out of Hunnam. So... General Almond is given the task of getting everyone out of Hunnam. He turns to my grandfather, Colonel Edward H. Forney, a United States Marine Corps Colonel, a World War II veteran, and says, all right, you're, he, uh, Colonel Forney was the Deputy Chief of Staff for the 10th Corps. 
He was the, the senior Marine advisor uh, to the 10th Corps. And, you know, there's plenty of stories about the, the Army and the Marine Corps not getting along. And Chongjin, uh, the Chosin Reservoir, is definitely one of those periods. Um, you know, uh, General Oliver P. Smith and General Ned Almond uh, do not get along. And there was lots of, lots of, I guess we could say, a tension between the two men. But Colonel Forney was the senior Marine officer that um, was kind of the liaison between uh, the 1st Marine Division and the Army 10th Corps, General Almond, who's in charge, actually, of the 1st Marine Division. So, or oversees the 1st Marine Division. Uh, so when Colonel Forney uh, talks to General Almond, General Almond tells him, all right, Colonel Forney, you are going to be the evacuation control officer. I'm tasking you with getting everyone off the beach. And Colonel Forney gives his salute, and yes, sir, we're going to get it done. So for about the next two weeks, Colonel Forney on the land side is responsible for getting approximately 105,000 U.S. servicemen. There was also a small contingent of Royal Marines that were with them also, and rock forces. So his job is to get them on, onto, the, um, onto the ships. Wow. His good friend from World War II, Admiral James Doyle, is the commander of Task Force 90. And these are all the ships that you mentioned, Admiral, that are off the coast, um, including the aircraft carriers. And so they're all out there. And together, Colonel Forney and uh, Admiral Doyle uh, come up with this plan uh, to get everyone off the beach and not only get everyone off the beach, but also get all the tanks and all the Jeeps and all the trucks and all the equipment and all the ammunition, everything off the beach um, out of the port and onto those ships. So it's, 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 it happens, and in two weeks they get it done. And so the military side of the operation is, is a huge success. And, this, and they're doing this all the while you know, the Chinese are moving in closer and closer to the port. That's, you know, Ned, absolutely amazing. And as, as you said, uh, the folks that we've talked to, not everybody is familiar with Hunnam. Um, the visualization of this for me goes back to that great movie, Dunkirk. And I'm standing and watching, you know, uh, Kenneth Branagh, who is a, a Canadian Navy commander standing on a pier uh, controlling this evacuation amidst all the carnage of the airstrikes and everything else. And I can see your grandfather doing the same thing on the beach from the, the way you described this. Absolutely amazing. And I'm glad that we can give credit to him and to you for doing this research. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I just I want to emphasize, too, that, you know, because we talk about this a lot uh, in, in today is the whole, you know, the, the Navy Marine Corps team. And I think Hunam really illustrates that, you know, the, 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 the Marine on the ground coordinating with the admiral at sea and these two guys had worked together during world war ii and that's another thing when you hear the stories about hunam and you hear the stories about chosen um, you realize that really what kept everything together was the the leadership from the ncos the staff ncos the and the officers who had already served in world war ii and so many times i've talked to for example marine veterans of chosen they had not even gone to boot camp. So this was this crazy wow. idea that we had this big reserve force, or not even big, it wasn't so big, um, but we had this reserve force of Marines. You know, this is after World War II, everything is scaled down, and, you know, nothing's going to happen anyway, and, oh, and now all of a sudden, you know, Korea's invaded. 
And so these guys were basically getting their their boot camp training on ships as they went over trial to Korea. by fire. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad we don't do that anymore. We're not forced to do that anymore. And we understand that the former South Korean president Moon Jae-in also has his own origin story, if you will, that personally connects him to the evacuation operation. Is that right? Right. So the you know the the military side of the operation is is one part of the story. The other part of the story is while the the military, Rock Colonel Forney and Admiral Doyle and all these the, their team of of incredible um, naval and Marine Corps officers, while they're doing their thing. Tens of thousands of North Korean refugees. These are people who have lived under communist rule for five years already, and they are desperate to leave with the U.S. forces. And I think that says a lot about the U.S. forces too. You know, they looked towards, they looked at what the what was happening, and they saw how they were treated by the U.S. forces. And the U.S. forces are going to Hunnam. Well, we're going to follow the refugees. Say we're going to follow these guys to Hunnam, and maybe, just maybe, we can get on one of those ships. So tens of thousands of refugees are flooding into Hunnam, and they even have to put up, you know, checkpoints all over the roads going into Hunnam at some point because they they have like a hundred thousand refugees in Hunnam, and. You know, part of the mission, a small part of the mission originally, the mission statement for Hunnam was we would we would get out about maybe a handful of refugees, maybe up to three thousand, and these would have been refugees who had worked for the U.S. military. So that was at the very bottom of the of the priority list. But now Colonel Forney and Admiral Doyle see, you know, hundreds. They estimated it was probably all said and done two hundred thousand refugees. Crammed into this port. What are we going to do with them? And and you know my book called Our Better Angels. I think both of these men and a doctor, a Korean doctor by the name of Dr. Hyun Bong Hak, uh, who was attached to Tenth Corps as a civil affairs officer, um, he had lived in in Hunnam as a, as a boy. And so these guys get together and they do. I always like to say they're not heroes. I don't consider them heroes. I consider them just good people. Men who had been trained, you know, in, back in from the World War II days, and they were doing the right thing for the right reasons in a very difficult situation, and I think that resonates with you know even us today. We're, we all go through tough times. We all go through difficult situations, and these guys did it, and they did the right thing, and they decided, let's see how many refugees we can get on these ships, and and uh, Moon Jae-in's parents were two of the total, when it's all said and done, by Christmas Eve, uh, December 24th, 1950, approximately 100,000 refugees have left Hunnam, and now they are heading to freedom in, in, in South Korea. Uh, Moon Jae-in, uh, who is the former president of Korea, uh, his parents were on the Meredith Victory, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And so he is one of the estimated 1 million descendants of those 100,000 refugees who were saved at Hunnam. 1 million descendants. You know, this reminds me of another story in another great movie, Schindler's List, mm -hmm. and look at the impact that that act made on the world. Andrew, exactly. you wanted to talk about SS Meredith Victory and a couple of the heroes that were on board there. 
Yes, sir. Uh, but before mentioning that, I think Admiral Harry Harris, on a side side note, mentioned that there is a famous movie, right? It's called Kukjeshijang, which translates to international market. But it, its official English title is Ode to My Father, which really made a lot of people, including myself, cry a lot. It show, there's one scene about the Hungnam evacuation, and the main characters try to squeeze into the boat. Probably one of the boats were uh, Meredith. Um, victory and it's just saddening it's just heartbreaking but it's, it was a reality and think about all those people who are saved making impacts in the free world right um, so Mr. Forney we'd like to thank you for your grandfather's work as an evacuation officer of the operation so according to the Guinness Book of World Records the evacuation operation was the greatest rescue operation over by a single ship by evacuating 14,000 refugees threatened by annihilation. This ship was no other than the, like you said, a U.S. merchant marine ship, SS Meredith Victory. We understand that the, the two other heroes, Leonard LaRue and Rear Admiral Robert Lunny, played critical roles aboard this ship. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So the, there were approximately a hundred ships that were involved in the Hunnam evacuation. And some of these ships took uh, refugees, of course, many of them took just the military personnel, but also the refugees. But the ship that has come to symbolize all of those hundred ships is the SS Meredith Victory. And the reason that the Meredith victory gets so much attention is really due to one man, um, Ad, Bob Lenny. Um, and at the time of the evacuation, he was not a rear admiral. He was, he was a 23-year-old merchant marine officer. He was a purser aboard the, the ship, the, the Meredith victory. And he was very close to Captain Leonard LaRue. Captain LaRue and Bob Lenny had both served in World War II. Um, captain LaRue was a captain on the Murmansk runs, which, as most people know, were extremely dangerous runs up in the North Atlantic. And um, Greyhound Tom Hanks, there's another one. <laughs> that's right. I love that movie. Oh, that's just a great one. Um, one of my favorites. Yeah, so that it's amazing what, what Captain LaRue had done even previous to to Hunam. So now he's he's the captain of the Meredith Victory, and Bob Lunny is his purser, and they see, you know, the, the, they're coming into the port, and the port, there's a narrow lane that goes into the port, because if you get out of this narrow lane, um, there are mines everywhere. And the North Koreans had put mines all through the, the harbor, and the U.S. Navy had tried to clear out some of those mines, but there was just basically one little path to get in and out of the port. So yeah, we call that a Q route. Uh, well, they had it, and it and it worked. And but you can still imagine how scary it must have been for these captains to go through, you know, this little. No passage. kidding, you're threading the needle. Jeez. Exactly, amazing what they did. So they get into the port and they start loading, and about 24 hours later, they're finished loading, and they realize basically they've just said, "Okay, everyone, come on board, come on board, come on board." When it's all said and done, this ship that was supposed to hold, I think you can hold 
possibly 20 passengers if you and it's not really made for passengers it's a cargo ship and there are different levels of this ship where you put different types of cargo and so they're basically cargo holds so what they're doing is they're loading these refugees um, into the cargo holds and then when they get the bottom cargo hold done they seal it up and then they get to the second cargo and they're they're doing this all night long and when it's all said and done, there are approximately 14,000, probably over 14,000 refugees crammed into this ship. And admirals, we talked about earlier, what that means, if, if there are 14,000 people on this ship, to get that many on board, you literally have to be packed in like sardines. And I have talked to some of the refugees who were on the ship, and they said they basically stood up. It took them, by the time you loaded, and then by the time you unloaded, they were on that ship for, for two nights and three days. Wow. And during that entire time, they stood up, crammed up against one another, no food, no water, no toilets, and little air. And they said it was just, it was it was terrible, terrible voyage. But I've interviewed 30, over 30 of these former refugees. Some of them were on the Meredith Victory. And all they talk about is how grateful they are to the U.S. military. They didn't talk about, oh, there was no water and we didn't get fed and there were no bathrooms. They don't really talk about that. They just talk about how grateful they are that they were they could escape North Korea. They could escape communism thanks to the U.S. military. You know, Ned, that's just... Uh... An unbelievable story. First of all, 14,000 people. I've looked at uh, the size of SS Meredith Victory, and to think that you could get 14,000 souls on board is unbelievable. The differences between then and now, you know, we, when we do these things now, we call it a non-combatant evacuation operation. You know, I've done them myself as a fleet commander in real-world situations, but they tend to be controlled and organized and uh, this was anything but. And it took somebody to make that call to say, we're going to overload and take a risk in order to save additional souls. So bravo Zulu to uh, Captain LaRue and also uh, to the purser, Robert Lunny. And uh, the last thing I'll tell you is, you know, as you were talking about the 100,000 troops and uh, the chaos of the evacuation, you know, Afghanistan most recently mm -hmm. came to mind. And uh, I think the... Uh, the sentiments of those Afghans who made it to freedom, an, an absolutely amazing uh, lift of people and material in one month, uh, are happy and uh, are, are grateful to the American forces that got them out as they now rehabilitate their lives in different countries around the world. But, uh, you know, this, this is just an amazing story that should not be lost uh, to the fog of history, and I'm so glad that you're bringing it forward today. Thank you. I wanted to, I wanted to share just one thing. You know, we're talking about Captain Larue and, and Admiral, as you just said. They, they, they made, they, they took a risk by doing that. You know, Admiral uh, Captain Larue took a risk. Um, Admiral Doyle took a risk. Colonel Forney took a risk because I always tell people, you know, the, the story ends well. There was there were even five babies born on the ship, and with all wow. these people, yeah. Unbelievable. And then all these people crammed in there. You would think, well, how many died during the voyage? I'm sure some people died. Nobody died. Captain LaRue said, God's own hand was at the helm of my ship. 
And so he later becomes a, a Benedictine monk, Captain Laruda, and he becomes known as Brother Marinus for the rest of his life. What a great but, call sign, Brother Marinus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's outstanding. I, I like that. Yeah, that's good. So um, four years ago, uh, Secretary of Defense um, James Mattis talked at the Merchant Marine Academy. He gave the uh, commencement address for their, for their graduation. He was there, and he actually talked about Captain LaRue during his address. And I, I'm just going to read. It's just one paragraph, if that's Absolutely. okay. Yeah, please he, go ahead. He, yeah, the exact words of, of um, uh, Secretary of Defense at that point, um, Mattis. This was in 2018 at the commencement ceremony at the Merchant Marine Academy. And he, here's what he says. In the frigid December of 1950, enemy soldiers bore down upon a city in flames. The harbor was mined and thousands of refugees swarmed the beaches desperate to escape. Captain LaRue ordered his SS Meredith Victory into shore amidst a storm of war. And he and his crew rescued 14,000 refugees and bore them away safely on his ship. Before they could put into safe anchorage, Five babies were born, and with over 14,000 refugees, not a single life was lost. Now there was a leader not concerned with putting it all on the line. Absolutely wow. amazing. Yeah, it's just absolutely amazing. And I just want to point out that um, the Catholic Church, Vatican, <laughs> is now considering a sainthood, granting a sainthood to Brother Marinus. So that's another amazing result and a heroic um, heroism that is being now uh, praised by multiple communities. So that's right. Yeah, and actually, Bob Lenny was uh, was Catholic, and he he was very um, very interested and very involved in that in that um, uh, process. So, uh, of course, we know um, Bob Lenny, uh, Admiral Lenny, passed away just uh, just a few months ago. And a great memory for uh, uh, of both Admiral Lunny and uh, also Brother Marinus, Captain LaRue. So thank you so much, uh, Ned. I know that uh, everybody in the Navy League and all of our listeners appreciate uh, what you brought to the table in terms of uh, historical perspective and stories today. And these stories uh, should be remembered um, for all of their heroism and patriotism. Um, you know, I, I'd like to offer one more. We don't we don't have time in the podcast to go into every uh, act of heroism that took place during the uh, campaign in Korea, but uh, it's ironic that while I was watching uh, for the second time Top Gun Maverick, mm-hmm. I went back to see it again because it was so good the first time. Uh, during the trailers in the second movie, I was really pleased and surprised to see a movie that'll be coming out in uh, October called Devotion, and uh, you know, there were a flush of memories that came back uh, from my time as director of Navy staff when I was privileged to go to Bath Iron Works in Maine and be the official uh, one-star, three-star officer who was present for the commissioning of the USS Thomas Hudner. And the story of Thomas Hudner is told by his biographer, Adam Marcos, who I met at the commissioning uh, in a book called Devotion, which is now being made into a movie. And the stories about uh, uh, Thomas Hudner as a young man uh, in a uh, combat air support operation uh, in a Navy aircraft in Frozen Chosen, and his wingman, Jesse Brown, is shot down. Uh, He's so devoted to his wingman 
that Hudner actually crashes his plane uh, to try to help uh, Brown and, and get evacuated out of the area. Uh, he's unsuccessful in doing so. I won't spoil a movie for you, but I've got the copy of the book Devotion right here with me today. And I have Thomas Hudner's signature on it, which I treasure along with Adam Marco. So, uh, you know, I, I recommend uh, not only Top Gun Maverick, but also uh, Devotion to all of our listeners uh, when it comes out in October. I'd like to thank all of our guests on Maritime Nation, Admiral Harry Harris, the magnificent and patriotic Monfort Point Marines, and you, Captain Ned Forney, for joining us today to provide insights into the heroes of the Korean War, the critical importance of our allies, and the relevance of the Indo-Pacific region to America to this day. This episode has been produced and edited by the Center for Maritime Strategy in the Navy League of the United States. Special thanks to our sound engineer, James Peterson, for making this recording possible. You can find this and future episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. We welcome your feedback. Thanks very much, Ned, and uh, we look forward to doing this with you again. Great. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.